Well, hello everybody, and welcome to the latest edition of Infection Control Matters. Uh, Brett Mitchell here today, and I'm joined uh, by a special guest from the United States, Associate Professor Matt Davis. Hello, Matt. Hello. Thanks for having me. Uh, our pleasure. Our pleasure. Look, just by way of, of background, Associate Professor Davis is really involved in a whole bunch of work, but including uh, that around spinal cord injuries. As the Associate Professor of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at McGovern Medical School in, in Houston. Uh, he serves on many advisory groups uh, as clinical medical director of the Spinal Cord Injury Service Line and, and advisory groups in, in the United States nationally. He's also the co-investigator of the Texas Spinal Cord Injury Model System and uh, is a reviewer on several spinal cord injury-related journals. And today we're going to be talking about this interesting concept that I saw in, in a paper you've just had published, Matt, around uh, Foley's. And whether intermittent catheterization or indwelling catheterization increases the risk of UTIs. But before we even get to that, um, how did you, how did you get interested in this topic? Um, you know, so coming at things from a rehab perspective, it's you know it's a very practical specialty. With, you know what what affects people's day to day lives, mm. and um, the choice of bladder management in spinal cord patients is it's can have a really profound effect. So uh, a lot of patients are not able to self catheterize. And so if those people, you know, are, are being catheterized by others, it's hard for them to leave the house when mm. they want to take the kids to the park or whatever. They can only leave for four hours at a time or they have to find a, a restroom that, you know, both that mm. both genders can go into sometimes because often the caregivers are different. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so you so you, so you, you started, you obviously got this interest in, in spinal cord injury. And then did you notice in your clinical practice, um, your, your patients getting a lot of UTIs and, and what absolutely was yeah yeah these these patients are very high risk for UTIs uh, and they have um, and I think that we, we don't really necessarily have a great understanding of all of the reasons that they're susceptible mm. um, they have an impaired immune system and um, one of the findings that didn't really come through in the article uh, as much was that uh, people who have highly spastic bladders people whose uh, bladders are uh, very overactive. These patients have, you know, extremely overactive bladder sometimes. Mm. Those patients were uh, extremely high risk of UTIs compared to the other spinal right. cord patients. Yeah, okay. And, and, you know, I know there's a lot of theories about why this particular population group are susceptible to UTIs. I guess one, one view, would you say, is that the frequency in which, of course, intermittent catheterization occurs is, is an opportunity every time for self-catheterization that, that, that bacteria are introduced. Do, would you, would you, do you think that's a reasonable statement or do you think there's that and many other factors as well? I, I think there are other factors. I think that it's um, preventing bacteria is really difficult in these mm -hmm. patients. And so actually one study in, in the CDC guidelines, when you look at um, ways to prevent symptomatic UTI and long-term catheter users, the best evidence is actually to induce bacteria with a benign colonizer. Mm. Uh, and so it really kind of, you know, has changed the way that I think a little bit perhaps about, you know, the, the relevance and significance of bacteria. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what about diagnosing UTIs in their true sense, the true infection form in patients with spinal cord injury? You find that difficult? Very challenging. There's, mm. um, you know, these, a lot of these patients do not have good sensation over their bladders. Mm. And then, if, you know, they can't feel the burning when they urinate, for instance, mm. Uh, mm. pain, you know, super pubic tenderness. 
And so often they present with these very nonspecific signs or symptoms like increased spasticity, increased neuropathic pain. Um, mm -hmm. But even with that, some recent studies have come out that suggest that those uh, soft symptoms, the ones that don't necessarily localize to the bladder, mm -hmm. don't necessarily correlate very well with urine culture results. Right. Yeah. And so a lot of the things that I was taught as a resident in training mm. actually is not all that relevant or useful. Mm. Mm. And of course, the, the sort of broader definitions of UTIs, as you alluded to in this in this population group, are difficult because they're not going to have those sensations that others might have in different population groups that would then fulfill criteria of UTIs or symptomatic UTIs. Yeah. I mean, the, the symptoms, if they don't feel symptoms, you could miss UTIs that are mm. meaningful. Mm. Um, un until they become febrile UTIs. Mm. Mm. Um, and, and there's some argument that maybe those are the UTIs that matter. Every, I mean, most of these, I, I shouldn't say that most of these, you know, perhaps most of these patients are colonized. Mm. Uh, over the long term, they are colonized. Which probably isn't so surprising. They're always, the urinalysis will always show bacteria. <laughs> yeah. The urine culture will always be positive. And you can always have some vague symptom that you can attribute to a UTI. Yeah. And you'll yeah, check a urine happen. and, oh, look, there it is. Yeah, it makes it very challenging, yeah, doesn't I, it? <laughs> yeah. um, so moving on to this sort of concept of indwelling versus uh, intermittent catheterization, what what was your sort of initial interest in there were you, with with this sort of concept? Because the original, I guess, the original idea put out is that perhaps indwelling urinary catheters uh, are more risky in terms of UTIs than intermittent, but that's not what you're seeing in clinical practice? Uh, that's correct. I mean, I, I, just to, to be clear, I think that you know, for people who are able to empty their bladders normally, so non-spinal cord patients, mm -hmm. it's very clear that as soon as you're able to get the the catheter out, get mm -hmm. it out. Yeah. Um, but but for my patients, it's just it's different. Mm -hmm. And so you know, we have here in the U.S. we have uh, uh, some changing uh, policies, governmental policies that affect reimbursement and uh, public reporting. So. You know, for example, the hospital that I work at could be considered a bad hospital because we have a high caudi rate. Mm. Well, they were counting caudies related in and out. Excuse me, they're counting caudies related to indwelling catheters, mm. but not caudies for in and out catheter. You get, you get those mm. for free. Yeah. And I said, well, that's not really fair. You know, I mean, yeah. and yeah. so the more I looked into it, the more I realized I don't think there's a difference here. Yeah, and that led you to to the systematic review that you undertook. Um, yes. And we'll we'll publish the the, the link to that on, on our website. Um, no. So, what was the question you were asking there in your, in your systematic review? The question was: Is there a difference in UTI risk between indwelling and in-out cathing when you account for confounding influences? Uh, mm -hmm. One of the things I, I saw was that um, so there's there's an immune deficiency syndrome that you see in these patients that is most severe early on in the injury. Uh, it's most severe in people with cervical injuries as opposed to lower down, and it's more severe in people with a, with paralysis that's more severe. Hmm. Well, that's the exact same demographic that we tend to use indwelling catheters in. Yeah. And so, you know, to say with any degree of confidence you get more UTIs with indwelling catheters, you have to control for the, that confounding influence. Hmm. Um, hmm. And then also this, you know, we talked about nonspecific definitions of UTI. Hmm. Another, you know, potential source of bias would be if you have non if you have unblinded people assessing the the you know whether they think this is a UTI or not a UTI, mm. if if someone expects that people with Foley's are more likely to have UTIs than people with in and out cathing, they might be more likely to attribute non-specific symptoms like we just talked about. Yeah, they might be more likely to attribute that to the UTI. 
So via review, were you specifically interested in the spinal cord injury population or, or bro more broadly? You know, for this particular review, I was interested in the spinal cord population. I have mm. looked a fair bit into the literature in the general population. Mm. And uh, I I think it's pretty similar for, you know, there are, there are people with, you know, men with large prostates, for instance, some of them actually do need to choose mm. between in and out calfing and indwelling. Mm. Um, and, you know, when you look at the literature on indwelling versus in and out in the, in the non-spinal cord population, when you control for the duration of catheterization, mm. I, I don't think there's a difference there. Uh, mm -hmm. Now, using in and out cathing does often mean that you reduce the number of catheter days. Mm -hmm. So you can, you, you know, for example, um, if you, uh, some of these studies were done on people who had knee replacements uh, and they're just kind of waiting until the bladder starts to wake up and work again. Mm -hmm. Well, you'll, the people who are doing in and out cathing, they realized within just a couple of days that, okay, the bladder's working again. We can, you know, stop, you know, you, you can cut, down on the catheter days mm, uh, versus mm. if you leave the Foley in for a week on everybody you put a Foley in, that's yeah. when you have a higher UTI rate. Yeah. And, and you know, that's that's some of the challenges when there's funding or, or penalties associated with things like cowdy rates, where some of the interventions will try and drive down uh, catheter days and possibly quite rightly so. Um, yeah, appropriately so. Yeah. Um, but of course, you, 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 you mean, you're reducing your, your denominator in, a, in an incidence which you know can have the perverse effect of actually increasing your your rate overall so um that's that's a real challenge i guess yeah. in that space too yeah so what um in in the in your system we won't we won't worry about the methods too much because that's well described in the paper um, and people interested in methods can can read those but what were the what were your sort of key findings from from your paper so the, the key findings were that uh well first of all there were, we found 24 studies uh, that met our inclusion criteria. And we we excluded studies that only looked at asymptomatic bacteria, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, and to be clear, when we compared in and out cathing to indwelling Foley's, uh, there were a few studies that broke down in, in and out cathing by attendant for people mm -hmm. who were not able to self-catheterize versus mm -hmm. self-catheterizing. And, and we compared indwelling to cath by attendant because that's a more comparable group. Yeah. Um, and so there are 24 studies we found, and only three studies found a significantly higher rate of UTI with in and out cathing. Mm. And all three of them had a critical risk of bias. So bias mm. that you would expect to skew the results in favor of in and out cathing. So overall, then, your sort of general synopsis would be you couldn't find a major difference between infection rates utis in in people intervented versus it was people. it was really interesting because it really i, I think that you know when, when you look at recommendations and some of the guidelines that are that are out there that say you know you should consider in and out cathing over indwelling mm. it comes from the spinal cord injury literature yeah right. uh, they're not mm. citing studies on you know men with large prostates mm. and and so uh it it really made me wonder how did we ever come to this belief that people get more utis with Foley's because, you know, we only looked back to 1980, um, maybe back in the days when they had latex catheters, things mm, were different, mm, you know, mm. or, or, or older catheter designs. But in the last 40 years, there have been, you know, no studies that I would consider to be credible given mm. these, this bias issue mm. that really are anywhere close to convincing. Mm, very interesting. You mentioned in, in the systematic review that you excluded asymptomatic bacterias. Um, I noticed when I've been looking at the literature, there'll be some papers that will call things UTIs, 
when you actually look at how they define a UTI, they'll just say the presence of bacteria. So, so how did you head in that? You know, methodologically, did you if if the paper said this is a UTI and use the word infection, but really when you drill down to the definition in the paper, it was just bacteria. Did you consider that as bacteria and exclude them? Yes. Yeah. And mm. so a lot of yeah, if they and that's true because uh, you know I guess when people who might want to criticize this review might say, well, hey, here's a study on UTIs, mm. and yeah, so every time that we you know, most of these studies do have their definition of what constitutes a UTI. Mm. And if it was something that only required a positive urine culture and, and no other findings, then that was excluded. Yeah. Yes, it is. A, it's a tricky one. I've had the same 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 questions asked and, and stuff that I've looked at too. So what do you reckon the, the, the next steps for this are? What, what Do you think that this is definitive enough? Or do you think we need, there needs to be, you mentioned no, no real high quality studies in, in recent times. Is there a need to explore this more definitively now based on this review or what would be your next step? I think what I would say is if there's a difference in UTI risk between the two methods, it must be pretty small because mm-hmm. there've been a whole lot of studies that are negative and the difference in quality of life and just practical day-to-day issues that these patients face, um, incontinence, mm-hmm. um, Foley's eliminate incontinence or mm-hmm. superpubic tubes. It, you, incontinence is practically eliminated. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they outweigh any small difference in UTI yeah. risk. If there's a big difference, okay, then that's more of a discussion. But they're just, it's hard for me to imagine there is a really substantial difference. Yeah, okay. And, and I was going to come to that about the other things. So we talked about UTIs as, you know, as a, as a primary outcome here. But there are a lot of other factors. If, if that risk is negligible, um, a lot of other factors considered like, like quality of life measures. But in, in your clinical practice as well, have you noticed... A hemodynamic differences, or um, or the way in which the clinical management of patients might be different uh, if that someone had an indwelling versus a UTI, knowing that you know there's some some of those yes. patients can rapidly deteriorate. Yeah, to to properly um, manage an, in and out, a, a intermittent catheterization catheterization schedule, I mean, you have to really closely monitor urine output and uh, bladder volumes, mm-hmm. uh, and so. Um, for a substantial portion of these patients, they will have, like you mentioned, hemodynamic instability. They'll get autonomic dysreflexia if the bladder becomes overdistended. Uh, and, you know, that, that can result in blood pressures that really are hypertensive emergencies. They can lead to things like strokes and seizures. Um, usually they mm-hmm. don't, but um, usually we catch these things before it gets mm-hmm. that bad. Mm-hmm. So I guess in the case of that, then indwelling would help negate some of those. Th- those issues yeah. do, you, do you find those very much in the early stages post injury or is that something that's going to be a consideration lifelong so dysreflexia actually is not often there in the, the first couple of weeks um it comes on you know perhaps two to four weeks after the injury is when it mm-hmm. can start to manifest itself um and it lasts lifelong. And so this is part of the issue, you know, the, one of the things that really brought this to my attention in particular was the fact that we had, you know, neuro ICUs that were pulling Foley's in everybody because they wanted to get their cardi rates down. It mm. was a, it was a financially driven thing. Mm. And, uh, and so some of these patients came to, you know, spinal cord injury centers where we realized, Hey, this is not sustainable to have this person on in and out cathing, you know, we'll, we'll, it's time to put mm. an indwelling back in. Um, mm. But a lot of them, don't really have the benefit of going to a spinal cord center. Mm. And so we were seeing some of these people just kind of released into the world. And 
sure, while they were in the ICU, they weren't having this dysreflexia problem. Mm. Uh, but, you know, we had a, you know, we'd see these anecdotal reports of people who'd be coming into the emergency rooms with extreme hypertension, and, and some mm. of them were having, you know, strokes. And, uh, mm. and so that became an advocacy campaign for us as a mm. spinal cord, uh, uh, our, our professional societies uh, have an advocacy campaign for that. Mm. Okay. And, and in your clinical practice now, um, if you, I won't ask you what your hospital policy is, but um, <laughs> unless you want to answer that, but um, if you had your choice, um, would you be in favour more then of, of patients having the indwelling catheter as opposed to intermittent? Would you would you like that in- autonomy to be able to decide that as a clinician rather than be uh, you know have a have something over over overhanging what you need to do? Fortunately, I, I have enough autonomy that uh, and and have served on enough hospital committees, I guess, that I can <laughs> have a, have enough pull that. Uh, yeah. Yeah, we get to do what we think is best for the patients. And really, it comes down to patient preference and lifestyle. Mm. Uh, so for some patients, maybe they can't self-catheterize, but they just don't want a tube in their body. Mm. Okay, well, if that person has the has a caregiver available who's able and willing to do that, great. Mm. Mm. Um, some people, even people who are able to self-catheterize, they say, I don't want to deal with that issue. It's a mm. hassle. You know, it mm. used to take me you know, 30 seconds to empty my bladder before my injury. And now it's, it's really mm. hard to pull my pants down while I'm sitting in a wheelchair. Mm. Um, mm. And so uh, if, if there's no, if we can't find a, uh, an obvious benefit from an infection standpoint, then what, what are we trying to do here? Mm. Excellent. Look, it's been a fascinating uh, chat with you. I really appreciate your time and uh, thanks for your work in this area too. No, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about the work. Um, look, that, that'll, that's a wrap from us for Infection Control Matters in this edition. Um, we'll put the details of the papers that uh, the Matt's uh, authored and been part of on our website as well. Um, but thanks very much for, for joining us, Matt, and thanks to our listeners. Yeah, my pleasure. Bye for now. <laughs>